is Bethany. And I'm Joel. And this is Sunday School Cinema. For this particular week, we watched Gattaca, which may be more memorable to some people than some of what we've watched so far. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. Gattaca is like a 1997 sci-fi movie by, what is the director's name? I'm Andrew Nichol. Andrew Nichol, yeah. Who has done a few, a few other things since then. And I think my impression from the number of uh, movie podcasts and stuff that I listen to is that Gattaca is still like pretty well remembered. Like, people seem to, re- to recall it fondly. I think so, yeah. I had not watched it in a number of years. I, prob- I probably hadn't watched it since we did it for this group. Would be my guess. Yeah. As a quick up to what the movie is, hopefully you've watched it if you're listening to this, but it is about a future in which genetics sort of determine your birthright in a more specific way than they currently do. Uh, people can get uh, sort of custom made babies genetically to make sure that they're not going to have any illnesses or problems or like, you know, make sure they're good looking, make sure they're all of these things, you know, custom made babies essentially. And if you didn't get that treatment, then they know when you're supposed to die and all of this probability stuff about your life. And um, you're, you're sort of relegated to a lower tier of society. Unofficially, unofficially. Because legally you're not allowed to discriminate even in this world, but everyone does it anyway because it's so easy to tell <laughs> who, who the lesser people are. Right, and they can get DNA extremely easily, and apparently there's no rules in place for you know them being able to test DNA. Or at least not enforced rules, you know. Right, so this is this is sort of the world that we have ended up with, and our main character, played by Ethan Hawke, uh, was a natural birth and it wants to go to space with their space program, but he has a heart condition, and um, so they're not going to let him go. So he takes a sort of black market route to going to space, which is um, finding someone who was sort of like the cream of the crop genetically, but who is no longer able to use many of his attributes because he was uh, disabled in an accident. Um, and so the, this person, played by Jude Law, sells him his genetic material so that Ethan Hawke can pretend to be him. And uh, also Uma Thurman is in it as the love interest. It actually, the, the cast in this movie, honestly, is kind of ridiculous. I had not remembered. I mean, Jude Law is the guy whose identity he borrows. It has... For some fucking reason, Gore Vidal is in this movie. I have no idea how that happened. In like a in like a pretty significant role. Tony Shalhoub is in it. Um, uh, Alan Arkin, tragically. Apparently, I didn't notice this, but I noticed it looking through the cast. Apparently, in the scene in the Vincent's birth scene, one of the nurses is Maya Rudolph. Which, Are you serious? That's what it says on IMDb. Anyway, I didn't notice it at the time, but. She probably didn't have a line or anything, but she's in there. Uh, Elias Codius plays his father. It's actually a, it's a, it's a very impressive cast of like sort of uh, character actor types. Xander Berkeley is in it. He's always good. Which I feel like, I feel like the cast contributes somewhat to how people remember this movie. Probably, yeah. So Joel, I have been waiting to talk to you about this for multiple days, and I've been stopping myself. So I'm very curious. What did you think about this movie on a rewatch? Um. <laughs> So I would say that my uh, my opinion of this movie dropped considerably between viewings. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's definitely it's a mixed bag, right? There's definitely some interesting stuff. It looks very impressive. It's very beautifully shot. There are 
a lot of great actors in it, most of them doing good work. I don't think this is one of Ethan Hawke's better performances. No. I, I mean, I love Ethan Hawke. I think he's a great actor. He's one of the best working right now, but this is not one of his better performances. I think he's out of place as, like, the sort of genetic misfit. I mean... Frankly, I feel like you lose a lot of your your metaphorical power by casting Ethan Hawke as this guy. Especially young, especially young Ethan Hawke, but actually old Ethan Hawke is also great. Yeah, actually, it may be harder to swallow now, but I I mean, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but what the fuck was Alan Arkin doing in that role? Like, what the fuck was that role doing in the movie? Yeah, I mean that too. But I, I mean, Alan, God bless him. Alan Arkin is a great actor, but for some reason, you have him as like the the subservient, lower rank detective to this young hotshot guy, and it, none of it makes any, it doesn't make any sense. Their dynamic makes absolutely no sense at all. Well, I presume there's a genetic. I mean, Alan Arkin is old. They haven't been doing the genetics thing for that long. I thought of that, but I w- I'm not sure that that. For one thing, it's not clear exactly how far in the future this is, so it's not exactly clear how long they've been doing the genetics thing. But Alan Arkin refers to the to people. What's the term they use? They had a lot of dumb terms. Yeah, but he he refers to the these you know non perfect people whatever by the same terms as everyone else does. Invalid. In, in yeah, invalids, right? Invalids. He 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 uses that terminology like, and there's references to the fact that the that law enforcement has such a high standard and and all this stuff. It, so it doesn't quite add up to me that he would be. I, I don't know. So, so every time the two of them were on screen together, it was just like, it just didn't make any sense to me that Alan Arkin was in that role. It felt so weird. No, it, it was ridiculous. I, I don't know. I, I assumed it had to do with their age, but I agree it didn't work. And if that was the case, it seems like they should have like specified it. Literally, the first note I wrote during the credits was I definitely did not remember that Alan Arkin was in this. I, yeah, no, I, like, I kind of remembered that part of the plot or whatever, but I did not remember that it was Alan Arkin. I did not remember that part of the plot at all. <laughs> Speaking of, let's just go ahead and, you know, spoil what ends up, for some reason, being the big plot twist in the movie, which is that the younger cop ends up being his his brother, who he'd always had this competition with as a kid. Did not work at all as a plot twist, partially because that guy playing his brother is just, I mean, he's just a charismatic black hole like just he's just like a blank spot on the screen it's the i don't understand how he got into this cast but it yeah not interesting at all in that (laughs) their whole their whole rivalry that you know they would do this thing where they would swim out into the ocean and and which the winner would be the one who or the loser would be the one who turned back first basically and it just wasn't that interesting i don't know and uma uma thurman also was i did not think very good and had very little to do, so maybe it wasn't really her fault. I think it was that. I really felt, I honestly felt like both her and Ethan Hawke somehow had very little to do. (laughs) Theoretically, he should have. But, like, Jude Law was the one that got to have all the fun. That's what I was going to say. Jude Law's the highlight of the movie. I mean, he was the standout in pretty much every scene he was in. He he definitely has more fun. He gets to actually be, like, a, a more of a an expansive character and he he has a more interesting character arc honestly (laughs) although i kind of although i am not a fan of how it ends yeah no i was about to say that i was just about to say that the way that they wrapped up his story was not great (laughs) i didn't i had not remembered that i think i did but i think i just didn't remember or it landed differently for me at the time or whatever i just okay like a thing that i thought of at some point about halfway through the movie uma thurman's character figures out 
that Ethan Hawke's character is not who he says he is as they're like running from a nightclub. There's a scene where they're like under a bridge or hiding somewhere and his brother is trying to find him, but we don't know he's his brother yet and is like yelling after them and yelling his actual name, which is Vincent. And they have this like romantic moment under the bridge where, or under the whatever, where they are almost kissing it. And it was like extremely old Hollywood feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I felt like, I felt like that happened periodically throughout the movie that there was this, this like attempt at old Hollywood. And so Uma Thurman mostly just like kind of looks the part. Like she's very like voluptuous and has like the, the faces of, I could see her doing well in that, in that world if she was dressed up correctly. And I don't know, it just, it doesn't quite work for me, but it's something I wondered if that was what people are remembering. Well, that was part of the aesthetic of the whole movie was that it had this kind of, this kind of pseudo 1950s, like the cars look like they're from the fifties and the FBI guys all wear trench coats and fedoras and, and, you know, all the men wear suits all the time. And it's, it's kind of, that, that, that is kind of a big part of the look of the world is that it has this sort of weird retro 1950s vibe to it. I don't know. To me, it, to me, it felt mostly like a way to get around a low budget. So you don't have to actually design a future looking world. I can see that. Maybe that's unfair. I don't know. Maybe it was more deliberate than that. But it, I don't know. It didn't really work for me. Well, and even though this is a dumb thing, but I still <laughs> found myself thinking about it, which was that in the scene under the bridge, this is where they kiss for the first time. And I, and my immediate thought was, okay, I can buy into this like weird 50s feeling romance over the top extravaganza emotional thing that you're doing. But then when they kiss, they open mouth kissed. <laughs> <laughs> which does not look right. Yeah. If you're going to do this, then, like, do it right and have him do one of those weird kisses where it looks like he's smushing her entire face, but their mouths don't open. Right. Well, so the the other thing that we've... We haven't gotten into specifics about it, but, like, we mentioned that there's a cop chasing him. The main... The major subplot of the movie is that at this... Uh, what did they call it? The place... It wasn't NASA, but... It was called Gattaca. Oh, Gattaca, right. Gattaca was the name of it, right. At the Gattaca offices or whatever, there had been a murder, and one of the one of the program directors had been murdered, and Ethan Hawke's character was on the verge of going on this mission that he'd been working for toward for years, and he becomes a suspect because they find DNA in the scene that is his, but they can't they can't match it to him because he's under this false identity, whatever. But that whole the whole murder subplot was entirely uncompelling to me. I honestly legitimately wasn't entirely clear on who had even been murdered and when it turned out you you eventually find out who actually did it and it was super obvious the the more i talk about this movie the less i liked it like i came out of it with pretty mixed feelings but going through it i feel like it's uh it's getting worse and worse in my estimation. <laughs> okay, one side note. I'm just looking over my notes. And apparently Danny DeVito produced this. I saw that as well. Yeah, no, I, I saw that, his name in the credits, yeah. Because this was Nichols' first movie, right? It was, yeah. He wrote and directed it. I believe it was his first screenplay and definitely his first directing gig. Right. And since then, he has done a few other things that are also... He followed this up by writing the screenplay for The Truman Show, which is a fucking great movie, which we'll watch later. But he did not direct that one. That was Andrew Weir, is that his name? Andrew? Is it Andrew? At any rate, that guy's a great director. Uh, I don't think Andrew Nichol is. Other than this one, probably the one that most people would remember is In Time. It was, an, it was another kind of similar vibe sci-fi dystopia thing that had Justin Timberlake and... Who was it? 
Was it Olivia Munn or the other one who looks a lot like Olivia Munn? Also, one, stop saying Justin Timberlake with that disdainful tone of your voice. Uh, oh, no, Olivia Wilde. It was Olivia Wilde. Justin Timberlake was not great in this movie, but no one was great in this movie. It is Amanda Seyfried. No, it was Olivia Wilde. I just looked. Maybe they were both in it. I think they're both in it, because Amanda okay. Seyfried is definitely in it. I, I like Justin Timberlake fine as a as an on-screen presence. I, I, I don't think he's a good enough actor to be a leading man. I think he works well as a supporting... But at any rate, that's a side topic. Regardless. So, so yes, he did this other movie, which I definitely watched, because, honestly, because of Justin Timberlake, and who I do find interesting to watch. But the movie in general was not, was not very good. Um, and I think... So, like, as I'm watching this movie, the movie begins in a way that I think is... Okay, so, like, it starts... And the music is very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, music is a lot. So much happening. And at the beginning, this dramatic music is happening while the credits are rolling. And, all of the, and we're watching him, like, go through his daily process to remove all, like, excess genetic material from himself as much as he can. And there's just this point in the opening where he's strapping a fake ba a bag of pee to his leg so that he can fake a urine test and the music is just like dramatically <laughs> and i was like i couldn't stop laughing yeah that was a little weird uh and also i i also i, I was a little bit like so he has to go through all these procedures because like every day when he goes into work Instead of having, like, an ID card swipe, they have this thing where you put your fingertip on a little needle and it actually takes a blood sample. So everyone who works there has to do that every single day? I believe that is correct. Are they not just all, like, can none of them use their index fingers anymore? Like, they're all just completely useless? They have to do that every day? They just have to, like... It does seem painful. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, I guess maybe you could assume that they're, like, rotating fingers or whatever, but... I don't know. Anyway. Oh, it's incidentally, as far as the insane cast in this movie go, there's one there's one guy we forgot to mention, which is Ernest Borgnine. Oh yeah. Was his his boss when he was working as a janitor before he got into the Yeah, just, just running around. Yeah, just ridiculous. I don't understand how they got all these people in this movie. Well, that's part of why I noted the producer credit, because I was like, like, did Danny DeVito or like somebody ha that had clout, right. like really believe in this guy's vision? Or Someone whatever. obviously really loved the screenplay and, you know, threw money at it. Um, right. And I'm trying to keep in context, like, OK, like this is like the 90s, which I personally think is a pretty dead period for movies overall. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do not have as many movies that I love from the 90s as I love from other <laughs> from other decades. And, you know, we didn't have a ton of sci-fi stuff coming out then, did we? Until, like, The Matrix, but that was a couple years away. Yeah, that would have been 99, yeah. Right. And so maybe it, like, stood out for being sort of a different whatever experience, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, it is definitely a, it doesn't feel like an imitation of other things. It, it doesn't feel like it's you know, it doesn't feel like it's one of, you know, there were 15 movies like this that came out in a five-year period or whatever. I mean, it, it has, it, it feels like it, its own unique thing. So that, and that, you know, that uh, that always helps in terms of, you know, garnishing a good reputation and getting people to remember it And, well. like, standing out when people remember it. Like, oh, this was this thing that felt different. And I'm sure that at the time, when I think of it, I'm like, okay, it came out in 97. I didn't watch it then. I would have been 13 then. But I think I watched it in, like, the early 2000s. And it definitely would have been before I had seen a lot of, like, great sci-fi movies. So maybe it just, like, stood out to me, you know, as something like that. 
But the thing that I really do want to make sure that we bring up <clears throat> that was just like blindingly obvious to me as I was watching the movie that I found really troubling. There are several troubling things in this movie, but this one, this one was one of them. I wrote in my notes that it's optimistic. Like at some point he has a, he has a line where he says that we have, we have uh, discrimination down to a science. And I was like, it's very optimistic to say that we haven't always had discrimination down to a science. And, I, and then I was like, this story could genuinely kind of only be told by a white man. Yeah. Like it is in fact kind of a white nightmare. Like you could be the one who was immediately considered unworthy. Right. And not those other people. In a world which I might add is almost completely white. There's like a black doctor once. Yeah. And there are there are a few black people at Gattaca. I I think the idea is that that kind of bias or whatever has kind of been phased out of society by this process. But it's not particularly believable because it is almost like what we see on screen is almost entirely a white world. Well, and and yes, that was my assumption too, was that he was like, okay, the, by this point it's just genetics and it's not what, and I'm like, look, Handmaid's Tale made the exact same mistake. Handmaid's Tale made many mistakes, several of which are probably comparable to this one. Mm -hmm. But this specific thing of them being like, well, we're just not going to deal with racial bias in the show. That is in the book Atwood actually, because she had written it about like Reaganite Christians in the eighties in the book, actually all of the people of color were shipped off to the nuclear wastelands. So there are no people of color in the book. I remember that. Yeah. That, what a weird choice to, I mean, I guess if you leave that out of the show, then you have to, you have to have an entirely white cast, which brings another problem with it. Right. And when asked about this, Atwood and the people of the show were just like, we're, we're like had a similar concept of like, Oh, well now the babies are so important, whatever, like racial discrimination has faded and we've moved just to this, which is, obviously ridiculous like it does not make any sense and it is a concept that could only be put forward by white people um, and that's what i kept thinking of as i was watching this is i was like look not all of this but a lot of this stuff has been done throughout history to people of color and much of it continues to be done and if you had been telling a story where you were trying to grapple with that in any way that might be interesting but instead it really starts to feel to me like a white nightmare of like, look, you like you will not be immune to these things. Yeah, I kind of thought of this a little bit when you were talking about how you uh, you found yourself laughing during the opening montage when he was strapping the pee bag to his leg. In terms, of, so one thing that that this movie really wants us to know, it really wants us to understand because it it tells us this specifically in like the second scene in the movie. Vincent, Ethan Hawke's character, has a really great dick. Yes! It, like, that's that's literally, like, the second scene in the movie is he goes in to do a urine test for the doctor at Gattaca who has to, like, literally watch him do it because they're so careful about these things. And he goes on for, like, 30 seconds about how, man, you've got a great dick. Have I ever told you that? And he's like, yeah, you tell me every, you tell me every time I'm in here. <laughs> he's like, well, I just have to say it every time because it's so good. I wish my parents had picked one like that out yeah, for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like there's a... I feel like there's a, a troubling, like, you know, even this guy with the inferior genetics, you know, some of us, you know, he's still got something going on, like, some things come naturally, whatever. Something, like, for one thing, it was goofy and weird and didn't match the rest of the tone of the movie at all, and felt like a, like a leftover from a, a version of the script that had a very different tone. And I do think, there was something about it that seemed vaguely troubling that I can't quite put my finger on, but... Well... 
that what I wrote about that scene, because I did write something down in my great confusion, that is definitely not a scene that I remembered. What I wrote was like, is this guy telling him that his dick is, is great? Is it commerce or is it him being gay? Because like, or is it something else? Something more akin to what you're saying. But like, like this, his line about like, I wish my parents picked one like that out for me. And stuff where I was like, okay, like, is this normal now? Do people just like look at body parts of people and are like, ah, they picked a great nose for that person? That's an interesting possibility. That is an interesting possibility, but we never see anyone else do that in the whole movie. No! So, it, like, if they had done that, then it would actually, I would actually be, I would feel very different about that scene because it would, <laughs> and it would totally make sense that the doctor who does the urine test, that would be the thing that he always notices. But they, they, they never, they don't do that at any other point in the movie. That's the only time they do it. They do not. And it's so weird. And it's so like... Well, and it ties into... It, it ends up... Like, at the end of the movie, we find out that this doctor has basically known about him all along and that he's been letting him slip through because he has a son that is was a natural birth and that, his, you know, he's been telling his son about this guy at Gattaca who is, you know, make, like forcing his way forward in the world in spite of what's whatever. And that that is not... I would say that's maybe what, like partially because Xander Berkeley's a really good actor that I think that beat works pretty well, but it's still okay. But I also found myself laughing at that scene because like this happens at the end of the movie, he's about to go into space and they require like one last urine test. Right. And he hadn't brought one cause he didn't think he would need one at that point. As he's peeing in a cup and getting ready to get it to this guy, he's just like monologuing. Right. He's, like, he's just like, just remember I was as good as any of them. And the guy keeps saying like, have I told you about my son? Right. Like, don't forgive me. Okay, but like, I'm trying to tell you. Well, there's there's that, and there's another aspect to that scene that has always bothered me since the first time I watched this movie was that he tells him like the first thing that tipped him off was that he you know was watching him give this urine sample, and he says right-handed men don't hold it with their left hand. It's just one of those things. And this is something that they'd set up earlier where where you you find out where it shows in there's this montage of Vincent trying to become Jerome that he has to learn to write right-handed because he is left-handed. So, but this has always bothered me because I myself am right-handed and I hold it with my left hand. So, things I didn't know, people. I know, right? But it it it's a weird thing to write in the screenplay because it's like, I don't know, maybe it's true for the maybe it's true for the writer and he just thinks it's true for everyone. <laughs> That's so interesting because, of course, not having a penis, I did not know that. Yeah. I was just like, that makes sense. That seems intuitive. No, and it, it kind of does, yeah. But, it, like, I can totally understand why that would seem intuitive to someone who didn't have the experience. Maybe I'm the weird one. I don't know. But So that, that scene has always bothered me. Ever, since the first time I watched this movie when I was, like, 15, I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't work. <laughs> Okay, well, you know what bothered me about that scene as someone without a penis and no experience in this section um, is that he takes the he takes the urine sample and he puts it in and it says invalid. And I'm like, surely someone is testing this. Right. It can't just be him, right? Like, they're not just taking his word for it. Yeah. Well, and you've put it into the computer. like. Right. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, he's going, he's literally going from there to the launch pad, so maybe it's just like by the time anyone notices, he will already be gone. But yes, here's my thing: should he be going to space? <laughs> like, we're supposed to take on faith that he should because he wants it so badly. But I'm like, okay, we actually see multiple points where he, in fact, does have a heart condition. Right? Yeah, he's he is he has already outlived the projection from when he was born. So he's a 
liability in space, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, on the other hand, the other side of that is that it seems that in this world, a mission to space is not the same big deal that it is these days, because it says there's like a dozen launches a day. There's guys going up all the time, and his mission is a particularly important one, because it's the first one to do... He's going to some moon of Jupiter or something. But also, there's like eight other people on the ship with him, we find out in the final shot of the movie, which I hadn't realized. I was under the impression that he was going alone. Sure, I'm just so, saying. But no, I, I agree with you, though. Yeah. In general, the fact that he wants it so badly does not inherently make him qualified or, like, that he should do it, which, again, seems like a very white male concept that, like, I want this, so I should have it. And there is especially, like, a very pull-up-by-the-bootstraps concept of this that, like, yes, I wasn't as good as these other people, but I worked hard enough. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, I think it's more fair to say I... Not necessarily that I want it so I should have it more. I want it so I should have the right to try to earn it. But right. but he is he is earning it under false pretenses. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't send an astronaut up in any of our programs today that had a heart that was likely no. to stop beating it any minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's ridiculous. Why would you? Well, there's this whole thing with his heart. Like the the they don't actually know for sure that he has a heart condition. That basically the the what they they give him the probability that he will. It's like a ninety nine percent probability that he'll have a heart defect and that he'll be dead by the time he's thirty or thirty two or something. And so there's this. They talk about this early in the movie that there's this one percent chance that maybe there's nothing wrong with his heart at all and that he can't let the probability you know be what rules his life. But I think there is something wrong with his heart. I mean, it's possible that he's just having a panic attack when he sees in the, the scene with the treadmill. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was I wasn't totally clear on that either. I, yeah, that's the only. It did kind of look like he was having like a heart issue there, but it may have been a it may have been an anxiety panic thing going on. Yeah, it could have been. I just I I was like I mean like when he leaves, I'm like, but like should he? Yeah, <laughs> should he indeed? Also, they all wear they all wear their suits and ties into the spaceship, which is a little weird. It didn't say this, but my guess is probably that they don't actually launch from Earth to go to the moon of Saturn or whatever. They're probably going to like a orbit orbiting base or a moon base or something like that, but it still seemed a little weird that everyone was just in their suits and ties, no helmets or anything, getting on a spaceship. One of the... One of the things that really stood out to me in this is how differently the internet worked when he, you know, came up with this story and how little the story makes sense in some ways. Like, we don't have... We have genetic recognition down to a science, but we've apparently gone backwards on facial recognition? Well, see, yeah, their covering for that was a little thin, right? Because Ethan Hawke and Jude Law don't really look anything alike, other than being, like, good-looking white dudes. And and the picture that goes with the identity that Ethan Hawke's character is using is still Jude Law's picture. And they keep showing it. Like, it keeps... Like, every time he goes and scans into something, Jude Law's picture pops up, and no one ever notices, because, as as they say, no one ever looks at pictures anymore. It's all it's all the genetics. Everyone trusts the computers, whatever. But it keeps showing the picture. So it's like literally no one ever glances at it. Right. And then at some point there's like a wanted poster running around for his picture. And he's like, it's fine. Jude Law tells him it's fine. No one will ever notice. And like his reasoning here of like, they're not going to want to believe that someone could have snuck into their elite. Like, I get that to a point. I, it makes sense that the Gattaca people wouldn't figure it out, but the cops would. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
someone is going it's clearly him like the fact that he's wearing glasses and his hair is a little shaggier doesn't make him not ethan hawk and now jude law also incidentally their screens look like they do that weird fu- every time a picture comes up yes. on the screen they do that fuzz thing where it like runs up and down on the screen which is a weird retro thing that I don't like. I've seen that in a few sci-fi movies, and I don't understand why. Like video screen technology in the future is supposed to be worse than it was at the time the movie came out. I don't. But I also have a lot of questions about, like, I don't know, international politics. Yeah, we don't even really get, do. We even really get a sense of. Well, no. The the only thing I can think of is that we find that Jerome Jude Law's character had his accident out of the country. So there's, like, no record of it in the country. So there must still be, like, international boundaries and stuff. But I think that's the only mention of it. Right. But that was actually something that tripped me up a lot and bothered me a lot. Because, okay, Jerome was a championship swimmer. He shows a medal. Was that supposed to be an Olympic medal? I think so, yeah. So you're telling me that no one knows that an Olympic swimmer... How many Olympic swimmers do you know? That's... I am not personally a journalist who covers Olympic swimmers, but there are those. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I agree. It seems like that would have been a story. I mean, you know, I guess maybe he could. I, I, I'll bet, I, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I'll bet there are lots and lots of people who go to the Olympics once and they win one medal and even people who are super into the Olympics could never tell you who they were. But presumably the accident must have occurred shortly after he won his medal because he's not that old. Well, and because it wasn't an accident, because he walked out in front of a fucking car because he won a silver medal. Right, but probably the official story would have been accident. Right, but like the point being we could, that it was almost certainly right after the Olympics because he's upset because he won a silver medal instead of a gold. Yeah, goal. I mean, you know, I guess he could have he could have spent a few years building up to it but because uh, he's still upset about it at the time of the movie. But at any rate, it does seem like it would have been a story. Yes. Also, there are a lot of very dumb turns of phrase in this, including, like, invalid as well, but they also call people degenerates. Yeah, that was pretty bad. <laughs> and godchild. Yeah, faith, faith birth, I think, was the other faith one. Faith birth. And I, and I had you sequenced, which just made me think of Googling someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that is basically what it was. The faith birth thing is kind of a, a possibly interesting sidetrack that they never really get into, which is that apparently the reason why a lot of people choose not to have their children genetically altered is for religious reasons. That was why his parents did it, although by the time his younger brother came along, apparently they'd changed their minds. Well, it wasn't even by then. When he is born, his father refuses to give him that, his That's name. what I was about to say. The whole thing with his, like, they had decided, clearly the parents had decided that they were going to name him after the father, and then, like, at the last second after the father hears about all his son's probable genetic defects, he's like, no, no, let's call him something else. And then when the younger son is born, he gives him his name, which is Pretty brutal, man. Even even though he had given the older son his name as his middle name. Yep. <laughs> so he... <laughs> yeah, that was pretty harsh. There's also a scene um, right after the kiss under the bridge or whatever scene where Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman have sex next to like an ocean reflection. And it's a lot. Yeah, the, it seemed like they were in a bedroom that was like inside of like a glass extension that like stuck out over the water or something i don't know what the hell it was exactly but it was very it odd. was a lot what is what it was it was a lot there is in general certain elements like okay so they go to see a piano player perform the piano player performs this amazing piece and she says something about Basically, she says the piece can only be performed by someone with 12 fingers. <laughs> so they, this person's been bred specifically to be this great piano player. And I was like, what if your parents breed you with 12 fingers and then you hate the piano? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Maybe that's like a 
genetic thing you can kind of get around, but like, eh. you know, you can play the guitar or something. I guess I don't know. I'm sure there are other uses for a, a twelve-fingered person, but and there was nothing else like that in the movie. There was no indication that people were like doing weird shit with the genetic enhancements that they could do. It was all just like, okay, let's make sure he doesn't need glasses. And, you know, that he's six foot tall. There was no indication that people, other than the one thing, this one pianist who has 12 fingers, there's no indication that there was weird stuff going on. I think that in general, I mean, I do think we have to pause and take note of how, like, incredibly fucking ableist June June Law's storyline is. And it's not just that, but definitely the fact that he has ended up in a wheelchair is, like, a part of what he is, you know, his life is no longer worth living, which is definitely something that has come up in other movies. It could have worked if, if if his arc hadn't ended where it did. Right, because then he kills himself in a furnace. Yeah, he literally climbs into the incinerator that Ethan Hawke's character uses to destroy his own DNA. He climbs into it and turns it on. That's the end of the movie. Like he is he has he has fulfilled his his potential. That's that's the thing in the movie that they talk about. It sure is. That no that no one can ever exceed their potential if they if it seems like they have it just means that we've underestimated their potential and so, yeah, the Jude Law's character has now apparently fulfilled his potential by allowing Ethan Hawke to go into space instead of him. Yeah, no, there is a literal line that I wrote down because I was, and I wrote, well, like, genu- genuinely, what the fuck, which was him telling Ethan Hawke, I only, I should thank you, I only lent you my body, you lent me your dream. Well, right, see, that was part, like, I thought it was going somewhere else because he, what he told Ethan Hawke was like, you know, he gave him this refrigerator full of his material and was like, I won't be here when you get back. I'm going traveling. And then he had this line about you let me your dream. So I thought his arc was going somewhere else. Like he's, you know, he's taken inspiration from Ethan Hawke's determination to make things happen. And he's going to go out and he's going to find a new life for himself. And then he literally climbs in an incinerator. Okay, this is a small note, but come on, man. We are in the future. We've developed all these things, whatever. You haven't developed a, f- a furnace you can't kill yourself in? Because that seems like something you might do. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I was thinking that you were going to say that it's weird that they can't fix his spine since they can do all this genetic stuff. Also that, but I just like, I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's very small, but like, seriously, like I think now we have fail safes where you can't turn your (laughs) incinerator inside. Yeah. And it's not even just that he kills himself. It is that he kills himself to heroic music while it is intercut with Ethan Hawke achieving his dream. He incinerates himself along with all of the other uh, you know, waste from Ethan Hawke's efforts to fulfill his purpose. Because that was what the, that was why the thing was there. Because Ethan Hawke climbs into this thing every morning and scrubs all the loose skin off and everything and then incinerates it. It's real fucking gross. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a lot. I was just like, holy shit, the think pieces that will be written about this now. But unfortunately, <laughs> it was 1997. Yeah. So nobody had, you know, we, we've come a minute. Since I mean, may, maybe fortunately, I don't know that we needed more think pieces, but yeah. Yeah, but also we didn't need this plot line. Well, no, that's true. So the, the thing that I was really focused on, what what do you think that you found compelling about this movie when you were younger? I know I was like extremely into this movie when I was younger, and I don't know if you felt the same or what you thought was so exciting about it. So I was thinking, there's, I mean, there's a couple things. I did find the whole concept of like the the possibility of this kind of genetic manipulation and what it could lead to in a large-scale society. I found that very interesting. Now I don't think they did anything interesting with it. But I also, I, and I still find the whole concept of, like, of space exploration to be very compelling. So that was that was part of it, I think, was that 
in as a kid I, I I was much more compelled by his goal because I was looking at it now it seems very shallow. It doesn't seem like his 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 goal of getting into space doesn't have anything to do with like advancing humanity or discovery or any of the sort of idealistic things that people talk about when they make the argument for going to space. His all seemed to be about self-realization, self-actualization. That seemed to be his only goal. <clears throat> but as a kid, that was not something that I uh, I didn't really pick up on that aspect of it, I guess. I think I saw it as a, a more compelling thing. So that, that was definitely part of it. As a kid, I probably liked the... Because, you know, the, the sci-fi movies that we watched as kids, we watched Star Wars. I had seen some Star Trek... That was the kind of the only real sci-fi that we'd watched, and this was completely different from any of that. It was a very different look and feel to it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that was part of it. I mean, you know, by the time I was probably 15 or 16, by the time I watched this movie, so I'd seen some other stuff by then. I had certainly seen some other stuff by the time we watched it for this group when I was in my early 20s, but not not nearly as much as I have now. So I'm sure that was an aspect of it. I think. So I, I definitely think I was just like, it was, like you said, it's probably something similar, like something that I hadn't seen before. So there was that element. I think that the understanding of genetics and the interest in that, to me at least, and I can't speak for you, but I think for me at least that came a lot from our upbringing that when I look at it now, I'm like, yeah, this doesn't do anything interesting with the story. Like there are a lot of genuine questions to be asked about genetic manipulation and all of that stuff. Absolutely there are. But like this is a much more basic genetic manipulation is bad, playing God is bad. And that was the I don't know if this is still a movie that Christians talk about, but at the time this is a movie that Christians talked about as like when when the issue of like stem cell research would come up, which is a big hot button issue when we were kids, no one talks about it anymore. But it was a big thing when we were kids, and the the church was all opposed to it. And people would point to this movie as like this is the future you people are asking for with your genetic manipulations. And so that you know it was a movie that was kind of in at least the zeitgeist that we were in as a you know a worthwhile parable. Absolutely, and I think that our father liked it partly because of that. Although when I rewatched it now, I'm like, I suspect he also liked it partly because of other things, <laughs> because of how this really is a story made for and by white men. Although I don't, I don't actually remember for sure how much Dad liked it. Everything about the nothing about the aesthetic of this movie seems like it fits Dad's tastes. So I kind of suspect he doesn't actually like it that much. No, I actually do remember this um, because I showed it to dad before we watched it for group. And I actually, I do remember, I, I, I am sure that my brother can also picture my father's exact face as he is like, hmm, yes, that, that, was, that was interesting. Yeah, right. He's sorting through his mind for the, right. the bits that he thinks are worth talking about. It's yeah. not that he didn't. It's not that he hated it. I think he thought the ideas were interesting and like felt like he should be in favor of it because it sort of supported a lot of his own worldview ideas. However, yes, the aesthetic is not at all my father. There is, you know, sex, very, very not graphic sex by the yeah. ocean, but still sex. You know, I, I don't know how you would have felt about Jude Law's suicide at the end, but... Yeah, it's funny. I did not remember that at all. I feel like I remembered most of the, the sort of broad strokes of this movie. I did not remember that that was where Jude Law's character arc ended. Yeah, well, I didn't remember there was a murder plot, so... I, I kind of remember that as it was happening, at least. The thing that I keep thinking about, that I was very obsessed with when I was younger, and I cannot quite put my finger on why but the scene that always stood out for me was so there is there's an initial scene when they are kids where they're swimming out to the ethan hawks character vincent wins and his brother his brother loses and goes back 
Um, and they apparently never talk again after that. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, his brother's very upset about it. Yeah, the break with the family was very vague. Apparently both his parents had died and he hadn't spoken to his brother in years, but we never actually saw that separation happen. It kind of skipped over that. And apparently he didn't recognize his brother because I guess no one ever looks at a face anymore. Anyway. Yeah. So so he he is, when when they realize that, their brothers or when vincent realizes that it's his brother uh he says like let's go do this again because the guy is basically like you know the fact that you beat me was a fluke and whatever he said i you didn't beat me i beat myself that was what he said was that he had he had he, he, he had come to see it as like i talked myself out of winning because i got afraid right and that, that was that was how he justified it to himself that his inferior brother had beaten him Yes. And so Vincent is like, fine, let's do it again. Right, because neither of them have matured since they're 15. They both have to just immediately go do it again. I mean, that seems accurate. Anyway, so they go out to the water. It's fucking dark. It's... It just seems this is a terrible idea. Well, also, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a scene, seen a scene uh, of people swimming in the ocean that was so obviously a swimming pool. But that's, you know, that's, I guess, that's beside the point. But So they're swimming out, they're swimming out, and his brother keeps being like, Vincent, we have to go back. Vincent, we're not going to make it. And Vincent turns to his brother and very dramatically says, do you want to know how I did this? Do you want to know how I was able to achieve this much? It's because I never saved anything for the swim back right and i found that to be extremely compelling when i was younger yeah and i watch it now and i'm like this is very dumb that's stupid is it that's stupid well that, that is i guess that is part of his you know that is kind of the the driving force of his character because he's doing all this work to get to go on this space mission which only lasts a year and then he has to come back and do what like but he's not worried about that all he's worried about is that he's going to get to do this mission assuming he survives the mission he, right, he never likes it and, and right it is accurate to his character it's stupid but it's accurate to his character but i am really like i was really trying i was talking with eric and stuff and like trying to figure out like what was it about this that i found personally like so moving and i don't know i wish that i had like a basic thing i had come up with and i'm sure it, it connected to something for me but for whatever reason that scene that is the scene that i remembered from the movie because i found it so moving and so impactful and i don't entirely know why because when i watched it this time i was like huh. yeah that <clears throat> that's interesting yeah i i did not i didn't remember that line so I don't think that was a significant factor for me, but... I think that was the only line, to, like, direct line for the movie that I remember. I think as a kid, it may have appealed... I mean, you know, as a teenager, I think that's more appealing. <laughs> I think the idea of, like, putting your all into whatever your thing is, is more appealing when you're younger, um, before you sort of level out a bit, hopefully. Unless you're Vincent, apparently. But yeah, for whatever reason, that was the scene, and then I watched it this time, and I was like, well, <laughs> that happened. I don't think that I will ever watch this movie again. I don't think I will either. No, I, you know, it's funny because I had, I used to own this movie. I believe I got your copy. I think it was one of the ones that I took from you when you got rid of a bunch of your DVDs. And I had, at some point, I had donated the DVD because, uh, for some reason, the DVD copy that you, it was like this really old DVD and it was in full screen. So I had donated it with the intention that, you know, I'll keep an eye out for it. And if I see it again, I'll just buy it again. Cause I, you know, it's an old movie. I figured I could probably find it cheap. I'm glad that I watched it again before deciding to do that. Cause yeah, I, I don't think I want it on my shelf. Yeah. So I can definitely see why we chose this for group. I don't remember mm -hmm. anything about the specific discussion afterwards. 
Although I'm sure it was along the lines of the dangers of genetic research. Incidentally, people do still talk about stem cell research. I'm sure they do. Pro-lifers or anti-choicers rather still talk about um, still talk about stem cells. But I guess I'm just not. I'm not on that. I'm not on that side of the discussion anymore. So I don't. I don't hear it. But it's part of the. Uh, it's part of the things that they yell about when they're talking about Planned Parenthood selling baby parts. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's a lot of what they're talking about. So I I think you know we probably talked a lot about like the genetic, whatever. I just like the thing that really stood out to me watching it this time was the race aspect. And yeah, no, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how they were basically like taking their own metaphor out behind the woodshed and shooting it by casting Ethan Hawke in the lead role. <laughs> it's just ridiculous choice. <laughs> I mean, you can be an attractive person and still have genetic flaws, I well, guess. Well, it's not, it's not just that he's attractive. He's, he, But, I mean... <laughs> what we're saying is that Joel has an intense crush on Ethan Hawke. <laughs> I mean, sure, Ethan Hawke's great. He just, he just, he looks like a movie star. <laughs> he, just not, he doesn't have any of the, like... I mean... <sighs> I mean, he does, he looks a little less like a movie star than, like... I don't know, like Brad Pitt or something. I mean, I've... yeah, I, yeah. I mean, le- less less than Jude Law, I guess. Yeah, less than Jude Law for sure. I mean, come on, if anyone who has not watched The Young Pope, please go to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I just I just think they're they're not, no one's coming to mind immediately. But and, and you know, I, I guess part of it is that like, well, no, but the, I was going to say part of it is that he has to ha- at least looks wise, he has to you know pass. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. But that's not the case, because they make it clear that literally no one is paying any attention to looks. Yeah, apparently no one has looked at a face and fucking... Yeah. So, I don't know. It's like, ah, everyone's beautiful. I guess I don't have to look at things. Which, I mean... (laughs) Which, I mean, like, to some extent... Okay, fine. Is there something to be said for the fact that I, at 36 years old, do not remember many things that I used to remember because I no longer have to? Like, (laughs) including things like phone numbers and stuff like that. Absolutely. Absolutely true. I am not sure, however, that genetic reprogramming and all of this would make it so that our brains stopped categorizing things by faces. That's one of the things brains do the fastest. Well, right. That's, yeah, it's certainly not something that would happen in a generation or two. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why, like, it seems like they could have just had, like, Okay, part of the whole process of making him into Jude Law's character was that they had to, like, bribe their way into whatever government database had the picture and swap it out. That seems pretty basic, like, a basic part of, like, the setup for assuming a fake identity or whatever. And they, in, rather than that, they just wrote it off as, like, eh, it doesn't matter. No one sees faces anymore. No one will, no one will look at you ever, so it's fine. Not even her! Who... <laughs> thing for him who takes one of there's also this whole like bit that is clearly supposed to be romantic and i think i may have found it somewhat romantic when i was younger watching it now it's like again this is very silly the thing with the hair she hands him a piece of her hair and is like go ahead sequence right because apparently like her the entirety of her character arc is that she is at gattaca and she also wants to go to space but she also has a faulty heart apparently and she hasn't been able to hide it so she can. She knows she'll never actually get to go on a mission. She's just there watching the show, basically. She didn't work hard enough. <laughs> she wasn't willing to make the sacrifices. But yeah, so she like hands him her hair, and it's like sequence, and he just like tosses it, and is like, "Oops, wind blew it away." And then later, she does the same thing to him, or he hands it to her, and it's yeah, it's deeply silly. <laughs> it's just 
deeply, deeply fucking silly. So yeah, I think that I moved Gattaca down to a 2.5, mostly just for the... I think I moved it down to a 3, but after this discussion, I might move it down further. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're, there, there, there are things to recommend this movie. It is not an entirely... It's not, it is not entirely a waste. There's a lot of talent that went into this movie, and a lot of it's on the screen. But it's like, if you've never seen it, why are you listening to us? But if you've never seen it, fine. But, like, also, it's it's pretty silly. Yeah, it looks like initially I had it at a three and a half, so I it lost a star. There's there's better movies you can watch if you want to get... Because I, I think, I suspect, looking through Andrew Nichols' filmography, he is clearly an idea, a guy who's kind of obsessed with, like, the, the dangers ahead of us in the future in, like, a Black Mirror sort of way. And that, that seems to be the theme of a lot of his movies. If you want, you know, you can get, you can get some of that and his the sort of feel for his stuff watch the Truman show it's a much better movie in every, in every way i mean i haven't i haven't watched that one in years either i'm excited to revisit that one when we get to it but i'm i'm confident that that one will hold up yes i have watched it since i left christianity so within the last 7 years i have watched it because i remember watching it and being like oh this is a movie about atheism <laughs> like not having picked that up before so yeah i was trying to think if there are other movies that involve like genetics or whatever that I don't know if there's anything that has like dealt with this exact thing. I think, I think this movie would like to think that it's covering a lot of the same ground that Blade Runner covers. That's true. It's, it's not uh, at all. Uh, it definitely borrows some of its aesthetic from Blade Runner. I mean, it's not, it's not an imitation, but th- there's, there, there are definitely definite similarities. Um, we can feel confident that Andrew Nichols is a big uh, Blade Runner fan. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, who isn't, but that's yeah. I I don't know of a I don't know of a you know a direct parallel with any other movies that I can think of. But you know, we didn't fucking watch for group Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner had a nude scene in it. That might have been why. Also, Blade Runner's long. I mean, we watched a few long movies, but yeah. I don't know. I had you guys had seen Blade Runner by that. Yeah, I think. I oh watched. yeah, yeah. No, I. Although I, the first time I watched Blade Runner, I didn't like it. It wasn't until the second time that I got into it. And I may, I can't remember when that second viewing was. I had definitely seen it once by then, but I may not have, have seen it a second time by then. I, I think I liked it right away, but I mean, I, I have my issues with it, but, you know. I'm excited that Eric and I will get to... Eric has never seen Blade Runner, so <laughs> when we get to uh, on the Film School Rejects list that we're watching through uh, of their top 100 of the 2010s, one of them is Blade Runner 2049. So we're going um, to watch both of them when we get to that one. Okay, well, do you uh, feel like we've we've covered it here? Yeah, I don't know that I had anything else. I, I'm still just, I'm very confused as to how Gore Vidal ended up in a significant role in this movie. <laughs> as far as, I, like, I think it's his only acting role. I don't, I don't think he acted aside from this. I don't, I, although he was, I mean, he wasn't bad. <laughs> he was, oh, no, I guess he did do some other writing, or some other acting, rather. He has, I guess he has 15 acting credits, mostly like single episodes of TV shows and stuff. Yeah, it was not entirely new to him, but... But still, I mean, it does It does feel like... It felt like maybe they cast Alan Arkin in that role, and then for some reason they, they thought that the, like, the subtext of having Gore Vidal there would be better, so they booted Alan Arkin down to this other shitty role. Because Alan Arkin would have been perfect for that role. Like, <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thing I picture him in. Who can say? It definitely feels, when watching it, like, this guy had some connections somewhere, or was able to get something through the right person, and that person, like, really went to the mat for this movie. 
Uh, anyway, well, uh, let's pick our next exciting endeavor. Okay, random number generator. We got 83 this time. Oof. Okay. Oh, that's a great sign. <laughs> 83 is the stoning of Soraya M. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> what a fun movie! Jesus Christ. Okay. That's gonna be... Yeah. Well... What fun. God damn. I was just thinking about that the other... The, like, I was thinking about this project and I remembered that that movie was on there and that we were going to have to watch that again. And I was not looking forward to it. But here we are. So... Here we, here we fucking are. Okay. Well, we'll see how that goes. Well, I believe that you said when I recently talked to you, you have not been watching a lot lately. I would like to expand this as a note to include if you want to talk about other media things like reading. See, I, I do actually have a couple, because in the last couple of days since we had that conversation, I have actually watched a few things. Great. Uh, including this morning, I watched on Amazon Prime, Blow the Man Down. Have you heard about this movie? I The title sounds familiar. I fucking loved this movie. You need to watch it. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, for one thing, it's kind of like, I, I have a, a, a sort of, uh, particular fondness for, like, rural crime story kind of movies, and it's one of those, but it's, it's one of those, like, um, I don't know if there's a name for this subgenre, but it is definitely a subgenre where, like, a, a couple of ordinary people end up in a situation with, like, a dead body and a bag of money, and they make all the wrong decisions. You know, it's one of those. So the, it's about these two, young women whose mother has just died. They live in this small town in Maine. And uh, their mother died. One of them wants to leave, you know, hates the small town thing, whatever. And they end up in one of these situations. But so it has Margot Martindale in, you know, the exactly the kind of role that you would expect to see Margot Martindale in these days. She is like the the uh, the madam of the town brothel. Awesome. Who is kind of like, so she, she basically like runs the, you know, there's this whole like criminal undercurrent going on in this tiny town, right? And then she's kind of like in charge of that. There's this other, like, there's, it's basically like an unofficial town council of these three other old ladies who basically like run the legitimate side of town. And it's, like everything about that whole dynamic is just fantastic. It's uh, all three of them were familiar, but one of them was, I don't know how, you, how well you remember the movie Nebraska. Not well. Do you remember? Th do you remember their mother? No. <laughs> who was so funny? She told the whole family to go fuck themselves, and she went to some guy's gravestone and flashed herself at him, and was like bragging about how he didn't get to sleep with her. It's like a seven, seventy-year-old lady. She was hilarious, but yeah, I love that movie. But at any rate, she's one of the the women in this movie, and she's great. It's it's really good, and it has the, it does this fantastic thing. As you might guess from the from the title, a lot of the music in the movie is like sea shanties. Sure. It's like, it's like this fishing town in Maine on the coast. And it does this great thing where it actually has... It's, almost, it's like a Greek chorus where like at these interstitial parts through the movie, this group of like fishermen in like full, you know, like overalls and boots and all that, this like chorus of fishermen kind of appear on screen and sing these sea shanties. And it's fucking great. It's so good. So that, yeah, it's... It's on Amazon Prime. You should definitely watch it. It's only like 90 minutes. Yeah, I just looked it up. Also, it's directed by women, which is... It is, yeah. First-time directors, I think, and they're... It's, yeah, it's great. I mean, the the obvious comparison that most people are making is Coen Brothers, like uh, Blood Simple. It definitely has It definitely has some of that. It, I, I definitely got kind of a Winter's Bone vibe from it as well. Okay. It, it's funny, because you started out describing this 
you start out describing this as like this type of movie that you like where people are stuck with a where and I'm just like I hate that kind of movie. So you should have started doing <laughs> Then you said Marco Martindale and I was like, never mind. Right, I knew that would I knew that would hook you, yeah. Our beloved character actress, Mark Martindale. And she's you know, she's she's played this kind of role a lot in the last few years, but she's perfect at it, so who cares? It's, oh absolutely. Yeah. Incidentally, I heard um have you gotten to Mrs. America yet? No. Okay. Her is Bella Abzug is just mm. fucking phenomenal. And she did an interview with uh, the Still Watching podcast. And it was it was so great. She was just she was just as like she was just so wonderful and lovely. It was talking about like how much like being in this pro- in the project of This Is America had impacted her own feminism and her own understanding of things. And it was just it was just I, I love her. <laughs> she was on WTF a couple of years ago. And she was great. Yeah, she she really seems like she's every bit as great in real life as she is in, on screen. Yes, well, absolutely that. I will add that to my list. Also, last night, Tina and I watched Memoirs of a Geisha because she... Are going to speak positively about Memoirs so, of a Geisha? <laughs> she had seen it as a kid and had remembered really liking it, so she wanted to watch it again, and I had never seen it. So we watched it. Uh, most of uh, I, it was again kind of a mixed bag. I will say that it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. If I could like make a list of movies where I would just want to go like actually walk around in the world of the movie, it's pretty high on the list. Everything everything about it looked fucking fantastic, but the 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 plot was about as deep as a puddle, and there was a really kind of troubling the the central what I guess ended up being the central romance. Not great. So yeah, yeah, mixed bag, mixed bag. But I was not sorry. I watched it. Okay, okay. I read Memoirs of a Geisha. Um, Aunt Nancy gave it to me. Yeah. I mean, that book was a big deal when it came out. Right, you know, like... and Aunt Nancy gave it to me, and I read it, and I liked it a lot when I read it. I have read a lot of critique of it since that, like, it's a movie about uh, about Asian an Asian woman written by a white dude who has like visited Japan once or something. So I don't know that I have a lot of. And then I had watched the movie, and I really didn't like the movie partly because I watched it just after reading the book, and I felt that they had like actively like dumbed down. The story yeah i suspect there was a little more uh depth to the character dynamics in the book and i did definitely get the like to me it felt like a movie made from an outsider's perspective and that that was kind of a constant issue in the back of my mind through the whole movie tina didn't get that at all oh interesting okay she liked it more than i did so okay well you know take that for whatever it's worth but there's but i mean like i would i would fuck like i i would i would kill to see ken watanabe and michelle yeo in this movie directed by someone who is not a white dude. (laughs) I love both of those actors. I really wish I had seen both of them in more things. And they're both really good in the movie. You know, there's only so much they can do. Yeah, I I think that probably when I watched it, I would not really have known who they were. So Yeah, I I wouldn't have at that time either, I don't think. Interesting. I had not even thought about that movie in a really long time. (laughs) Yeah, it's not really a movie that people talk about anymore. Um I hadn't really thought, you know, it wasn't one that I had ever really planned to watch or whatever, but for some, something brought it to Tina's mind and she wanted to watch it, so. <clears throat> and we also watched the second Thor movie earlier this weekend, which is, uh, I, I think it's probably safe to say it's the worst of the Marvel movies. It's real bad. I had a soft spot for the second Thor movie. I don't know how I would feel about it. There's one fantastic moment where, uh, uh, which Chris is it? I can never remember. Amsworth. No, no, the other one. Oh, I mean, other... three of them are in it now, but the Captain America one. Oh, uh, Evans. Chris Evans has a has a 
fantastic cameo in it that is the best moment in the movie. I don't know if you remember that. Loki was fucking with Thor and, like, transforms into Captain America to fuck with him. Oh, yeah! And it's, it's like, I could feel the righteousness surging. It was, it was just, it was spot on. Really well done. But, uh, yeah... Most of the rest of the movie is pretty bad. The it, the the whole the the threat of exactly what was supposed to be happening was pretty much incomprehensible. Who cares? But I, although it was interesting because the the events of uh, Endgame ended up tying in pretty specifically to what happened in this movie, and I was a little confused watching Endgame because I remembered so little about this movie that I didn't remember exactly how it fit in. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. All right. That's about it, I think. For well, I also, I also just before we started recording, I watched the new episode of Betty, which I fucking love that show, and I'm so glad that HBO is doing it. It's so good. It's so good. I'm sad it's only six episodes. I mean, hopefully, I mean, hopefully they'll do more. I'm fine with them only doing six episodes in a season because it's, it's, you know, this kind of thing is definitely a gamble. Yeah, but no, it's ho- true. Hopefully they'll do more. Yeah, I watched last week's episode and just loved it. It's such a even if uh, they it's... only do even if they only do six episodes, I'm like, you know, that's basically we just get another. It's like a sort of sequel or spinoff or whatever to right another three hours to spend with these characters exactly <laughs> still way more than i would have thought we'd get so no absolutely true absolutely i'm loving it let's see what have i so um as i think i previously mentioned eric and i are watching through both this film school rejects list of the top 100 movies of the 2010s and then we're also watching through ebert's great movies so since we last talked we've done that twice because we do this on Fridays. So w- last week we watched La Dolce Vita, which was the first time I had seen La Dolce Vita. Um, I liked it okay. I I didn't love it, but I, de- I always just feel like when I'm watching Fellini films that most of the time I'm really happy to be looking at them. <laughs> and I don't necessarily take the same intense emotions from it that some people seem to, but like, I really enjoy looking at them. They're just like a gorgeous aesthetic. <laughs> I just See, love it. I think that I feel about Fellini's films the same way that you talk about like Kubrick and Nolan, that to you, they're such, they're just like emotional blank spaces. Right. I think that's how I, that's pretty much how I feel about Fellini's stuff. I think it just does not connect with me at all. Okay. Okay. I can see that. And this is also me coming out on the podcast to say that I don't like Kubrick. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, actually, I don't remember. Did we do any, I don't think we did any Kubrick, but we did Nolan. We'll get to Nolan. We did get to, we did do Nolan. So yeah, I mean, it's long. It's 175 minutes long. One of the fun things about La Dolce Vita is that Ebert you know, once you start, once you get into like the 70s and 80s and stuff, Ebert will often have like his great film review and then his original review of the film. So you get to read two things. And for La Dolce Vita, he first saw it when he was a student in film school and he included his review on the site. And it's so pretentious. <laughs> he didn't even like it that much. He gave it like three out of four stars, but it's so pretentious and you can so see the film school. <laughs> Yeah. And then you get to read his great movie review about why he loves it like 30 years later or whatever. And it's great. I highly recommend reading those two reviews, even if you never read this movie. You know, it's funny. We had, you and I had a conversation when you watched it or after you'd watched it or right before you watched it or something where I told you about how 
I had seen it twice. Uh, like, I watched it once on DVD, hated it, and then when I was living in Portland, they played it at the Hollywood Theater, and I went to see it because I figured I should watch it again, I should give it another shot, and this is, like, the perfect venue. I should go see it on the big screen with a crowd of people. That'll be the perfect way to see it. And I hated it so much that I almost walked out. <laughs> the yeah. funny thing is, is that in hindsight, I actually can't remember if that was La Dolce Vita or if that was Eight and a Half, because I felt the exact <laughs> same way about both of them. It might have been Eight and a Half that I went to see at the theater. Well, I think I also felt the exact way about both of them. I think I gave both of them three and a half stars, but they weren't my favorite. The, the only Fellini movie I've given four stars was La Strada. So I've seen five of his movies so far. There will be more on the Eber list. And then last week we also watched The Invitation, which I hadn't seen before. Uh, was that the like thriller Yes, movie they're invited the dinner party. to the dinner yeah. party, and um, they, it's weird because there are actually like two movies about being invited to dinner party to awkward dinner parties. I think that came out within the same couple of years, but one of them ends more in like a group orgy, um, and one of them is more about people dying. Yeah, that uh, it had uh, what's his name, the poor man's Tom Hardy. I can never yes. remember the guy's name, but that poor that poor guy. But he really does look exactly like Tom Hardy. He looks exactly like Tom Hardy, and he's like half the actor that Tom Hardy is, so it's, it's but unfortunate. But he was fine. I had very mixed feelings about that movie. The rest but... of the cast was great. I I thought it was really good. I the, the Zodiac Killer guy is fucking great, always, and he was great in it. I can never remember that actor's name. but I was so obsessed with the specificity of social engagement in that movie that like Eric and I spent most of the movie like debating and going back and forth about like when would you leave like would you leave because it, it felt so, so often with movies that are thrillers it's like okay well I would fucking walk like obviously I would leave but that wasn't the case here it was so like the way that all of these background dynamics and stuff worked and the way that the friendships between them clearly worked all of these like really complex underlying you know Know, grief and emotion and things there were several times where i was just like like there was once or twice where i was like i think i would have done something a little bit differently here but most of the time i was like no i think i probably would have ended up staying because it doesn't get to the point where like i cannot handle it and especially i you know it, because it's my friends like my friends are there and i would want to make sure that everyone is okay and i i i, I think i would not have left <laughs> and then presumably would end up dead so I, I watched it back when it came out in 2015 so i don't i don't have a clear enough memory of it to but yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty impressive. That, so the unreasonable thing that is not at all the movie's fault <laughs> that were, was bothering me throughout the movie is that there is someone that I, uh, well, I don't really follow them on Twitter anymore, but I used to follow them on Twitter. And I kind of muted them because their movie opinions annoyed me so much. And the way they expressed their movie opinions, I uh -huh. should say. But and when they saw Midsummer, they hated Midsummer, and they just like for like a week, all they would talk about was how much they hated Midsummer. Which for someone I you know obviously open here, Midsummer is my favorite movie of last year. So like you know I I loved Midsummer as well. I I don't blame anyone for hating that movie, but I love that movie too. That's yeah, oh I don't blame anyone for hating it. It was the way that they kept talking about it as if this as if they had some sort of like I don't know higher authority or something but one of the things that they kept saying was that like the invitation did all of this so much better and i can't and i'm watching the invitation and i was like what the fuck are you talking about this is not a similar movie <laughs> like this isn't even attempting to do the same things that i feel like <laughs> the summer is trying to do and so i was like actively annoyed the whole movie because i kept being like you are so wrong uh, because it's not, it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. That's that's where I'm gonna leave that. And then we watched, we watched the Willoughby's on Netflix. I don't know what that is. 
Okay, well, it's a, it's a cartoon. It's based apparently on a Lois Lowry novel that I don't think I ever read. It is a weird... It is a weird movie. It is... It, it It's very beautiful. The animation is gorgeous. Absolutely loved looking at it. And it had some moments that were fucking fantastic. <laughs> and then it had other moments where I was like, I think this is for kids? Question mark? <laughs> Is this for kids? Should this be for kids? I don't know. There, there are moments where it goes like extremely dark and points where I'm like not convinced that this is the message we necessarily want to give to kids. Right. But as adults, it's an interesting movie. It is funny. It looks gorgeous. It's 90 minutes. If you feel like watching an animated film. Okay probably worth it if you have kids maybe watch it before showing your kids i don't know i don't have kids obviously so maybe i'm just like projecting but and there are certainly dark things in many kids movies but there were just certain things in this one where i was like this is a weird moral so there was that and then uh we me and eric and alex finished uh the john wick trilogy on thursday yeah yeah i saw your tweet about yeah, I hadn't rewatched the second one or the third one, I don't think, since theaters. Well, I'm going to rewatch the second one, but I, just have, I definitely haven't seen the third one since the theater. And I I didn't love the second one when I saw it. I thought it was okay, but it felt like kind of a letdown. But when I rewatched it after having seen the third one, uh, I kind of loved it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole franchise is fucking amazing. I, I, I think they've been going, I think it's been going downhill since the first one, but it's been a slow decline. Like, I think they're still really good. I still think the third one's better than the second one. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I need to rewatch all three of them, but. I just love, like, everything about those movies is just, like, so good. Like, this, like, this, the music is so good and so, yeah. like, well put together. Yeah, the level of filmmaking in that series is way beyond anything that you would expect from something like that. It's So much! Yeah. Oh, and, like, the set pieces, I mean, the third one must have 20 fucking set pieces of, like, these insane fights! And they're all so fun! I love them so much! And I'm so sad that we have to wait an unknown amount of time for the fourth one, but I will definitely be there the minute it is around. And then I guess the other one, I, I, Eric and I yesterday rewatched, well, Eric had never seen, I rewatched The Godfather, uh, which I had not seen since I was, I think, I think I was in my 20s. I watched it with you guys. Did you? I did. I, I did that. that. And I don't think that I was able to focus on any of it at all did you only watch the was it just the first one you watched with us no i watched two okay i don't remember anything about the second one i think i was just so bored when i first watched it wait so have you not have you not rewatched the second one yet nope that's next. oh man i'm okay so if you if you like the first one again at at this point you're i mean i think it's i think it's sort of generally agreed that the second one is better my memory is definitely that the second one is better so yeah we'll see i i really i was i was so glad that i had a chance to rewatch it because it was such a long time ago that i watched it and it clearly just wasn't I wasn't able to connect with the material at the, at the time, but I really enjoyed it this time through. So I'm going to take this really controversial stance of saying that The Godfather is good. <laughs> right. See, yeah, see, that was... So I guess the, probably the first time that I watched it would have been when I watched... I, I hadn't remembered that you'd watched it with us, but I guess it makes sense. We so Sometimes, you know, me and Jared were constantly getting movies, but sometimes with the really, really important ones that you wanted to watch, we would... Well, and I didn't want to watch it by myself. <laughs> right, that too, yeah. So I guess it makes sense, but... So that would have been the first time that I watched them, but those prob- they were probably months apart that we watched the two of them. Probably. Because uh, that was the way Jared did things. But at some point when I was living in Portland, 
someone that I knew owned them and I watched like I took like a Saturday and watched the first and second one back to back and I really want to do that again I have you know that would have been it probably would have been eight or nine years ago at least and I, I haven't I have not revisited them since so at some point I really want to do that I need to buy them I, I should just get the box set but yeah and I've never seen the third one which I know is supposed to suck but we're gonna watch it anyway yeah the third one was uh, yeah not not great but we're gonna watch it anyway but yeah I think um I was I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it I think for anyone listening who may not know I have never been a fan of uh, organized crime or mafia or mob movies they just don't they don't speak to me particularly or they never have and so I had watched I think most of the important ones in like my early to mid 20s so mean streets and goodfellas goodfellas and all of the, which are all of them all of them i remember nothing about at this point i was always bored i was just never able to connect to them at all and so when the irishman came out last year i was like okay well i have to go see this and i was determined to, i really wanted to go see it in theaters Ugh, theaters because i was sure that my only hope of being able to focus on this material was if i was not watching it on netflix and i was like this is like my best chance to go see this so me and the boys went to go see the irishman and much to my shock and surprise <laughs> i walked out loving it and it was one of my top 10 movies of the year was it i didn't remember that you might have liked it more than i did i mean i liked it i liked it a lot but i don't think it made my top 10 and something that happened to me while i was watching the irishman is that there is a scene there's a scene of this like elaborate dinner and they're like basically there's this go-between thing where de niro's character is constantly having to go between like the sort of higher-ups and uh al pacino's god damn it what's the character's the guy's name uh, Jimmy Jesus Christ. Anyway, so so I'll, so uh, Jimmy Hoffa is doing shit he shouldn't be doing based on the rules of the game, so to speak. And Robert De Niro's character is like going back and forth between Jimmy Hoffa and sort of the higher ups and trying to explain to Jimmy Hoffa why he needs to back the fuck down. Um, and they're using all of this like intense coded language and like it's all it's what it is. It's what it is. You just. <laughs> Yeah. Over and over again. And I had this moment of revelation where I was like, oh, mobsters are like mean girl groups. <laughs> it's like a teen soap opera. Everyone understands the expectations and there's all this coded language. And I think that for me, that just really gave me like an in to the material. And I, I did find that still helped in The Godfather. I also found, I mean, the thing in one of the things I think that made The Irishman really stand out for me a movie that has weirdly been accused a lot of not caring about its female characters. Um, I think that is true in most mobster movies. That is certainly true in The Godfather. <laughs> yeah. My memory is that Diane Keaton gets more to do in the second one, but I eh, I wouldn't. I certainly would not swear to that at this point. I'd... In Ebert's, one of his reviews of The Godfather, because we also got two of that one, one of his reviews of The Godfather, he's like, so trivia question, what's the Don's wife's name? Yes, she doesn't have one. So I, I think that in The Irishman, there is really like a core emotional component that is carried by Anna Paquin's character, even though she doesn't speak a lot, uh, that was really, really compelling to me. And I did, while watching The Godfather, find myself consistently being like, gosh, it would be nice if we ever felt like we understood any female character's perspective in this movie because that would add to the world. Someone should like someone should do like a YouTube edit where they just like they copy paste Anna Paquin into the background somewhere, like staring disapprovingly. <laughs> but I do I do want to say that I, you know, I I'm glad that you found this way into these movies because I I tend to really enjoy these I mean obviously, you know, I enjoy The Godfather. That's again not exactly a hot take. But I do think it's kind of funny that like 
you may be the first person to ever like get into gangster movies by seeing them as a parallel to uh, Mean Girls type stories, but I guarantee you that people have made that comparison before, just in the other direction. That groups of teen girls are like organized crime. Yeah. That I, I guarantee you that this <laughs> happened the other way. But I do think it's interesting that you you got into it in this direction. Again, Ebert did var- validate me in his review of The Godfather. He did specifically say that their interactions and social constructs and stuff were remarkably similar to seventh grade. Right. So I felt very validated in that way. I don't know. I think it's hard because like I watch a movie, like it's not like I need all movies to be about women in order to be something that I like, but monster movies are so different. Like the the reward structure, all of it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't like connect to me on any kind of personal level. I don't find it exciting or cool to watch these guys kill each other off most of the time. I don't, I just, I I just don't, it just doesn't land for me. Um, And so I think I needed to, I think what I needed was to understand the social stakes more than the physical stakes, which of course is, you know, what sort of the mean girls do instead of killing each other generally. Also, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that in, in regards to gangster movies that are interested in their female characters, the most obvious example of that is Goodfellas, which is interested in at least one of its female characters to the point that it literally turns over the narration to her for like half an hour. It's unusual in that regard, no doubt. Yes, and I, I look forward to rewatching it. I look forward to... I mean, definitely when I watched The Irishman, when I came out of it, my immediate thought was... I mean, it's partly like watching Scorsese definitely like engage with and consider in many ways his own body of work... Uh, and you can sort of see him doing that in a way that I'm definitely kind of a sucker for. And so that made me want to go back and like watch some of this body of work that he is considering. I also haven't I haven't rewatched Mean Streets since that time we watched it all those years ago either, even though I own it. So I, I need to watch that one again. Yeah, I don't remember anything about it. So yeah, um, hot take, The Godfather, good movie. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Solid stuff. <laughs> Solid stuff. I support it. So yeah, um, yeah. So I think I think that'll that'll probably do it. Yeah, I think so. I don't think I have anything else. Cool. All right. Well. We will talk talk to you next week about the stoning of Soraya M. Oh, God help us. Yep. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye.